Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we are going to be in Exodus 1 through 6. This introductory set of chapters is going to set up the good guys, the bad guys, the conflict, and God's movement with Israel through history. Now we're into the next time period now. We've seen the early period. We've seen the creation and its aftermath. We've seen the covenant within a family. That was Abraham and their struggles to live the covenant within a family. Now we get to see the covenant in bondage. And this now relates to all of our lives when a heavy burden is on your shoulders. Every one of us have a Liberty Jail-like experience or a Peter on the boat where he says, carest thou not that we perish. There will always be moments where we carry a heavy burden and we wonder where is God in these days. Well, that's Israel in bondage. And that's what Egypt is. We get to see how God reacts when we are suffering. We get to see how we should and maybe even how we shouldn't respond. So watch for that. Watch for the truths related to the burden placed upon our shoulders. So let's look at chapter 1. And the beginning of Exodus 1 talks about the names of the children of Israel. We kind of have this transition verse in verse 1 with the tribes. And then we read in verse 6 that Joseph died in all that generation. Skip down to verse 8. There arose a new king over Egypt, which knew not Joseph. Now, the author of Exodus is not going to give us the name of the Pharaoh. And so there's a lot of ink spilled in scholarship trying to figure out when was the Exodus. And I don't know. I think the the interesting thing is in the Bible, there's a verse that talks about they're going to be in bondage for 400 years. There's one that says 430. And then we have this text that says they're in bondage for four generations. And so none of those things line up. And so what scholars do is they look at this and say, well, there's all these different traditions and we really don't know. And I'm okay sitting in that, just knowing that, hey, we don't know when it was, but we take this on faith. There really was a man named Moses and Israel really was in bondage. And so Pharaoh says, you know, we need to put taskmasters over them unless they multiply and fight against us. And so in verse 11 talks about the taskmasters and the more they're afflicted, verse 12 tells us the more they multiply, they just get greater and greater. And this is carryover from the last book in the book of Genesis. God is very interested in Israel multiplying and they do, they just get bigger and bigger. And so then we read in the next verse in verse 13, that the Egyptians made the Israelites serve with rigor and hard bondage. And they do things like work in the field, and they construct things with brick. And then we have these two midwives that are named in the 15th verse, Shipra and Pua. And Pharaoh comes to them and says that when a male is born, you're to throw him in the river. That's verse 22. But if it's a daughter, save the child alive. That's the 16th verse. They're worried about the Israelites multiplying and fighting against them. And the midwives agree. They say, okay, we'll do it. But then look in verse 17. In verse 17, it says that the midwives feared God and did not as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the men, children alive. And the midwives, had they just come out and said, you know what, we're not going to do this, Pharaoh. This is wrong. If they would have opposed him to his face, he would have just replaced them with somebody who would. But they agreed, but then they subverted his directives behind his back. And so the Hebrew midwives are heroes right out of the gate in the very beginning chapter of Exodus. I mean, we wouldn't even have a Moses if it weren't for these brave women who stand up to this mighty Pharaoh. I like to call this the good lie. They're lying to Pharaoh, but why? Well, look what it says at the end of verse 17. They saved the men children alive, and then they saved Moses, the deliverer. We're going to see this throughout Exodus, how there are individuals that don't give the whole truth. Moses is going to do this. We have the example here with the midwives. Earlier in Genesis, we had Abraham doing some of these things. And in the Middle East, they call this ketman or takia. And it's this idea of dissimulation where you don't necessarily have to give your enemy the full story. And they did it for a good reason. Now, we see the same kind of thing happening in the opening chapters of First Nephi. Nephi comes up to Laban's servant, 
and he gives Zoram just enough information to get the plates. He doesn't tell him the whole story, and we see it here with the midwives. Verse 20 tells us that the people multiply greatly because of the courage of the midwives. So we can see in this story that the women are heroes. I mean, they're saving lives. And we know the midwives are doing this, but then in the second chapter, we have other women that are heroes. We have this unnamed woman in the second chapter, verse two, that conceives and bore a son. That's going to be Moses. We'll learn later that her name is Jochebed, her husband, his name is Amram, and they have a daughter named Miriam. And Jochebed is going to put Moses down the river because If they catch her with them, they're going to kill the baby. It says that when she could no longer hide him, she took him with an ark of bulrushes and daubed it with Simon pitch and put the child therein and laid it in the flags by the river's brink. Now that word for ark is going to be the same word that's used in the Noah narrative, uh, the teba, when Noah and his family are saved. This is the same word. The word for ark or the ark of the covenant is a different word. This is Teba. That's what Moses has put in. And so she puts him down the river in the hopes that he can live. And Miriam is off to the side. She's kind of at a distance. And if you keep reading in chapter two, Miriam sees Moses brought to Pharaoh's daughter, and she plays a heroic role. She makes sure that Moses can be nursed by his mother, and Pharaoh's daughter raises Moses as her son. And so we have several women that are playing heroic roles. We have Miriam, the sister of Moses, Jochebed, Moses' mom, and Pharaoh's daughter. She saves this child, and Moses grows up. Bryce, I love to show my kids the Prince of Egypt. That beginning montage with the song of deliverance really has a beautiful spirit. If I was teaching a family, I would show that. Now, we need to remember that Moses was a Levite of the house of Israel, living in Egypt as the son of the Pharaoh. And it says in verse 11 that he went out unto his brethren and looked on their burdens. So to me, that's a clue. Moses at this point somehow knows he is one of the Israelites. He's not an Egyptian. And he spied an Egyptian smiting a Hebrew, one of his brethren. And he looked this way and that. And when he saw there wasn't anybody, he slew the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. And there's a lot of traditions trying to explain what happened. One of these uh, traditions is from an early Christian historian named Eusebius, who talks about a court intrigue whereby certain individuals plotted to assassinate Moses. And so in this intrigue, it's said that Moses successfully warded off the attacker and killed him. There's other commentaries. One is a midrash that talks about Moses with his bare fists killed an Egyptian who was actually in the act of hurting a Hebrew woman. I like the way Prince of Egypt, the the film portrays it where it's like this accidental situation. None of us really know. It doesn't really tell us. But for whatever reason, whatever happened, he left. He got Moses out of Pharaoh's house. Yeah, he's out of there. I really love the church's images. They have a beautiful website where they go through the story of Moses and they have these beautiful images. And on the fifth slide, I just put the one right from the church's website where it shows Moses looking at this Egyptian taskmaster whipping a a Hebrew. And it really communicates Moses's compassion because I think Moses had great compassion upon the Hebrews as God did. Now, Moses is going to become a great symbol of Christ and God in many of these moments where he's going to plead and intercede and defend and seek help for. And so see Moses as that role, that he is going to have compassion upon them. And he starts to live that role. He starts to grow into that role of defender of the oppressed. Yeah. So after Moses leaves Egypt, he meets this individual named Ruel. And he's also called Jethro. If you look in verse 18 of the second chapter, he has one name. If you look in chapter 3, verse 1, he has another name, Jethro. And to be short in speaking on this, there are multiple traditions. It's the same individual. So from one tradition, the name of Moses' father-in-law is Rule, but from another, his name is Jethro. And not to complicate matters, but if you go to Judges 4 or Numbers 10, we have the name Hobab. So who is he? Some people try to put it all together, and it's like three names in one. But I like to sit in this place of just saying, okay, there's just different traditions. And so I'm going to go with Jethro for this podcast, but just know that in the scriptures, he has a couple different names. To be fair, the Lord refers to him as Jethro in the Doctrine and Covenants. So I think that's legitimate to refer to him as Jethro. Yeah. So with that, he meets Jethro, he meets Zipporah, 
and he gets married. His father-in-law is a Midianite. He is a descendant of Abraham, and he and Zipporah are now husband and wife. And in the third chapter, he's going to see this bush that's burning, and yet it's not consumed. The text is actually going to say that it's not eaten or devoured. And so then in verse 4, the Lord saw that he turned aside to see God. God called unto him out of the midst of the bush. And I really like the image, once again, from the church's website where it shows a bush and it shows the Lord. And we have a couple representations of this. One is on the 10th slide and one is on the 8th slide. So just so you can see what we're referring to as we talk about Moses's theophany. This is his vision of God, his first experience that we have recorded where he's communicating with God. Which is interesting, Mike, that he would use that phrase, a burning bush, because in the 1835 account of the first vision, Joseph Smith uses a very similar phrase. A personage appeared in the midst of this pillar of flame, which was spread all around and yet nothing consumed. So Joseph noted it drew his attention that it was like this place was on fire, but nothing was burning. So it's kind of like a burning bush where nothing was consumed. So I think Moses is having a similar experience to what Joseph Smith had in the sacred grove. And you can find that on your gospel library under church history under first vision, and then look up the 1835 account, and you'll find that in the last paragraph. So after he sees this bush, and he's called Moses, Moses, and Moses said, Hineni, here am I, and then verse 5 Put off thy shoes from thy feet, for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. Now he's going to tell him, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And God's message to Moses is a powerful message starting right in verse 7, isn't it? Yep. So this is kind of where we get the front row seat of what is going on with Heavenly Father when I'm in pain. Because sometimes we shake our fist to heaven like Joseph Smith did and said, oh God, where art thou? We sometimes assume he's not paying attention or he doesn't care or he's lost interest or whatever it is. And we, we assume that he is not paying attention to my sufferings because clearly he would do something if he was. And now we get to see God in our bondage. So listen carefully to what he says to Moses. Now, the Exodus account allows us to see this situation from the perspective of the conversation that's going on between prophet and the Lord. And that's a valuable perspective. We don't get to see that very often. I don't get to hear what the Lord says to President Nelson, and I'm not privy to those conversations. So this is a glimpse into that conversation of the Lord talking to his prophet about the suffering of his people. He says in verse 7, I have surely seen the affliction of my people, which are in Egypt, and I have heard their cries by reason of their taskmasters. I know their sorrows. And I think every single one of us, when we are in bondage, need to say that. We need to know that the Lord is saying, I have seen, I have heard, and I know. So when I am struggling, I close my eyes and I hear God saying, Bryce, I see what you're going through. I've heard the agony coming out of your heart and I know that you're suffering. And then he says in verse eight, I have come down to deliver you. I will deliver you. Now, that doesn't happen immediately. And I think that's very important to understand in this narrative that deliverance is a process. And that there's going to be this space between when our pain starts and when he delivers us. Now, next week, we'll talk about that mighty hand. We're going to see God's mighty hand in saving us from the causes of our pain. He will deliver us with a mighty hand. But there's this interim between when the pain starts and the deliverance comes that we need to know, A, he has seen it. B, he has heard our cries. And number three, he knows what we're going through. And he will deliver us in his timing. And we trust that. Now, that notice how often that message gets repeated. Verse 9, the cry of the children of Israel is come up unto me. I have also seen the oppression wherewith the Egyptians oppressed them. 
He's making it very clear that he is very aware of our pain and our hurting, and he will deliver us. Jump to verse 16 of chapter 3. The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob appeared unto me, saying, I have surely visited you and seen that which is done unto you in Egypt. I have come down when you weren't aware, and I have watched. I know the pain you're in. Jump to chapter 6. And while you're going to chapter 6, chapter 3 and chapter 6, in my opinion, are kind of telling the same story from different traditions. And so we have God giving his name to Moses in the third chapter, and we have it again in the sixth. And so I really think three and six can be put side by side, or they can be juxtaposed to see the overall message in these two chapters. They're really beautiful, and they really do complement one another. And then modernize it. Apply it to your life. Hear God saying this about your sufferings. He says in verse five of chapter six, I have remembered my covenant. We've talked so many times about the Abrahamic covenants, promise of deliverance, promise of protection. Now, again, that does not mean that we're never going to experience opposition. We know that opposition is necessary in all things. We are not promised an opposition-free life, but the covenant still remains intact, that he will, if we are faithful to our covenant, preserve and protect us. Those are the tender mercies that Nephi refers to in chapter 1 of the Book of Mormon, that I will show you that the tender mercies are upon all those who, in essence, keep the covenant, and God is going to deliver them. So verse 5, he says, I have remembered my covenant. Verse 6, I am the Lord and will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rid you out of their bondage. I will redeem you with a stretched out arm and with great judgments against the enemy. The judgments are going to come against our enemy. I will take you to me for a people and I will be to you a God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Those are some great words I would have you highlight and underline. He remembers. He says, I will bring you. I will rid you. I will redeem you. I will take you. I will be for you. I will establish you. You know, Bryce, according to several rabbinic sources, and this is in the Jewish translation of the text, but according to these sources, those four verbs of redemption, I will free you, I will deliver you, I will redeem you, and I will take you, those are connected to the Passover. You see, during the Passover, they drink four cups of wine, and each drink is associated with those verbs. I mean, they really take this stuff seriously, and they teach it to their children every year that that is the character of who God is. And I think you're driving this home as God's character seeing us and how he's involved in our lives. And I really also like how you bring out, it's not always immediate. And sometimes it's not in this life. Sometimes the redemption comes in the next life. That's a real issue that the Jews struggled with, especially as the temple was destroyed. When does the redemption come? That was a question that they often have asked, and I think some still today ask, and not just Jews, like everybody asks these questions. Yeah, but I think we just need to focus on and remember those phrases. Now, the beauty of the Book of Mormon is it gives us a whole different perspective. This account in Exodus, we only get to hear the perspective of God speaking to the prophet. But to complete that scene, I'd have you turn to Mosiah chapter 24, where another Moses-like deliverance happens among the people of Alma. So Alma was a wicked priest of Noah. He's converted. He brings a whole lot of other people who were converted out to the waters of Mormon. And then along comes Amulon, who was another priest of King Noah, but has joined the Lamanites and wants to punish Alma. And it says in verse 10 that their afflictions began to be so great that they began to cry mightily to God. See, it's the same situation as the Egyptians in Egypt. Their afflictions were so great, they cried mightily to God. But this time we get to hear God speaking to the sufferer, the one who's in bondage. And so as you study this week and hear what God says to the prophet, we must also hear what God says to you, what he does in that space between pain beginning and deliverance coming. 
sometimes that space is significant. Sometimes the time between the beginning of the pain and the end of the pain is long. And so listen very carefully to what he says to a very similar people as the Israelites in bondage. I'm going to read from Mosiah chapter 24, 13 through 15. It came to pass that the voice of the Lord came to them in their afflictions, saying, Lift up your heads and be of good comfort. Now he's going to repeat one of the Exodus words. I know. I know of the covenant which ye have made unto me. And I will covenant with my people, and I will deliver them out of bondage. But notice the next couple of verses. But that's not today. Deliverance is not today. So let me tell you what happens between the pain starting and the pain ending. Verse 14, I will ease the burdens which are put upon your shoulders, even that you cannot feel them upon your backs, even while you are in bondage. And this will I do that you may stand as a witness for me hereafter, that you may know of a surety that I, the Lord, do visit my people in their afflictions. I think we need to be more quick to testify that God was there in my afflictions. Now notice verse 15. This is the gift of the interim. This is what God offers us before the deliverance comes. He says in verse 15, Now it came to pass that the burdens which were laid upon Alma and his brethren were made light. Yea, the Lord did strengthen them that they could bear up their burdens with ease. And they did submit cheerfully and with patience to all the will of the Lord. I think we've got to hold this story up every time we study Egypt. My duty in the afflictions prior to the deliverance coming, is to submit myself to God as cheerfully as I can. Back in verse 13, with good comfort and trusting that deliverance is coming, trusting that the cup will be removed. And if not, he's going to strengthen me while I drink it. That's the promise of the Lord that's missing in Exodus. If you look back at your most painful moments. And even though it took a while before the deliverance came, he was there strengthening you. I had an incredibly difficult senior year in college. Jen and I were married at the end of my sophomore year. Our first daughter was born at the end of my junior year. And Jen wanted more than anything else to be a stay-at-home mom. So I was a senior in college working three part-time jobs to support a wife, a daughter, a mortgage, and try and make my way through my senior year. I was taking classes at the University of Utah like advanced human anatomy, where we had to know every nerve in the human body. The weight on my shoulders was crippling at times. And sometimes I cried out and said, Lord, I don't know how long I can do this. In the middle of that year, I was attending a biology lecture about why bone is so unique. And the professor said, see, the thing about bone is it's alive. When a bone senses it's under an added weight greater than it's used to carrying, do you know what actually happens? The bone thickens. Bones thicken to match the weight they are asked to carry. I'm sitting in that lecture hall. And I'm watching that. And all of a sudden, I just felt near tangible arms of peace lift that burden. And I realized that he was saying, Bryce, hang in there. This burden will go away. This burden will not last. But in the meantime, before I can take it away, I promise I will strengthen your back to bear it. And so in fulfillment of all of these verses, Exodus chapter 6, Mosiah chapter 24, verse 13, I now testify to you that in my darkest moments in my life, before the deliverance came, I received strength to endure the challenges I was asked to bear. I testify that God does in fact strengthen us so that we can bear our burdens. How easy do they become? Well, that depends on how your perspective. But I've learned to submit to him. He knows what I'm going through, and he will deliver me. 
But in the meantime, I can expect strength to bear the burden placed upon my shoulders. What's interesting is sometimes when all the stressors are released, that can be its own problem. If everything's easy. I'm and, stressed that I'm not stressed enough. Right. How many times in the Book of Mormon do they prosper and everything's wonderful, and then they just find themselves going towards sin? Some people call this the Goldilocks principle. Like there's this just right amount of stress that is perfect for the human condition. I really do think that we are geared. You, you were talking about bone. I think about the mind as well. The mind needs to be challenged. We need these challenges, and there's just that right amount. I think that's the key. And clearly in Exodus, not a good thing. Your senior year, to me, does not sound like a fun experience. That sounds like something that you probably had moments where you were counting down the days. But okay, I did graduate. Yeah, you not, made it. I right? made it. The burden lifted. Yeah, but I mean, you know there were days, right, where you're like, oh, counting them do down. This. Yeah, it's hard. I can't do this, Lord. I like that end of verse 14 where it says, I, the Lord God, do visit my people in their afflictions. That's good. So chapter 3 is the beginning of Moses working with God. And God's going to come to Moses while he's with Jethro, far away from the things going on in Egypt. And God's going to tell Moses, hey, I know the story of the Israelites. I know that they're in bondage. And Moses, I want to send you back there, and I want you to deliver them. And Moses, knowing the power of the Egyptians, is going to say something like, you know, Lord, I don't know if I'm your guy. He's going to come up with some excuses because, frankly, I think Moses is scared. I mean, the Egyptians, they have a lot of power. So in the slides that we have, on the 29th slide, there's five excuses that Moses gives. And there's a couple of them in chapter 3. One of them is, who am I? And the Lord's reply, I will be with you. And then in the third chapter, he also says, who are you? And the Lord's going to say, I am who I am. But then there's the answer to the 11th verse, where he says, who am I that I should go into Pharaoh? And the Lord says in verse 12, and I find this very interesting, it says, he said, certainly I will be with thee, and this shall be a token unto thee that I have sent thee. When thou hast brought forth the people out of Egypt, ye shall serve God upon this holy mountain. And verse 13 says, Moses said to God, behold, when I am come to the children of Israel and shall say unto them, the God of your fathers has sent me unto you, and they shall say to me, what is his name? What shall I say unto them? Now, before we get into the name, look in verse 12. God says, this shall be a token, and that's a ha'ot, and ot is a sign or a token, and the stars are used as signs. And there's a, a lot going on with that word of ot, and the Greek translators are going to call this semion, and that is the word for sign or token, but it's also, that Greek word can also denote the idea, if you've ever seen those charm necklaces, where there's one side and only one other one matches it. Or a samion could also be like a key that is specifically made for a lock, only that lock and only that key. The way I'm reading verse 12, and this is, I really see some temple stuff going on here, is there's something that God's showing him and the text doesn't tell us what it is. Later we'll read that God will swear to Moses the covenant and the word that they will use is that he is raising his hand. And so there's something going on with verse 12 that I think is very provocative. I mean, obviously, you're not going to get into this if you're teaching children or whatever. But as adult readers of the text that have been endowed, we can see some, some interesting images here. Now, let's get to the name. God said to Moses, I am that I am. And thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. So what does that mean? I am that I am. Ehe, asher, ehe. And what that is is it's the first person imperfect of hayah. The verb hayah in Hebrew literally is to be or being. We give this to you on the 12th slide. You can see what it looks like. In English, it's very enigmatic. But to me, it's a theologically loaded statement. You see, if you take the verb to be and then you take it in the imperfect form, you add what's called the prefix to it. And there are all these different prefixes in Hebrew, like he, he will be or she will be or I will be. Well, if you add the yod to hayah, essentially you're going to get Yahweh's name, the third person imperfect, he will be. And so this is Frank Moore Cross's explanation. He says, the accumulated evidence strongly supports the view that the name Yahweh is a causative imperfect of the Canaanite proto-Hebrew verb Huay, or to be. Therefore, the divine name Yahweh, or what we're going to call as Latter-day Saints, Jehovah, according to this view, literally means he 
who causes things to be or he who creates. I think that is a really good way to read the divine name, or what many people call the Tetragrammaton. If you look up Mormon doctrine, Bruce McConkie talks about the Tetragrammaton. In in Jewish religion, they don't say the name. The divine name is not to be pronounced. And so typically what they'll do is they'll say Adonai, or they'll say Hashem for the name. Adonai is a Lord. Adonai is my Lord. And so they'll say that or they'll say Hashem for the name because the name of God is so sacred in the Jewish mindset because they take the commandments about taking the Lord's name in vain very literally, not to use or misuse the name of God. Now, a Bible scholar, her name is Christine Hayes. She has a set of lectures called The Open Yale Courses. Lecture 7, chapter 5, she talks about the description of God in the Bible. She talks about this name of God because this exchange, who are you, sits in antiquity. It's a very ancient way to understand God and also Moses' mission. You see, if he knows the name of God, then he has a relationship with God and he has authority. And so what Christine Hayes says is this, Moses says to God, can I tell the people who sent me? And he asked for God's name. And the Israelites, they want to know who has sent me. And God replies with a sentence, Ehe, Asher, Ehe. This is a first person sentence that can be translated, I am who I am. Or perhaps I will be who I will be. Or perhaps I cause to be what I cause to be. We really don't know, but it has something to do with being. And so Moses, wisely enough, converts that into a third person formula. Okay, he will be who he will be. Or he is who he is. Yahweh, Asher, Yahweh. God's answer to the question of his name is this sentence. And Moses converts it from a first person, imperfect, to a third person. He will be who he will be. He is who he is. He will cause to be. I think most people think now that what he will cause to be, and that sentence gets shortened to Yahweh. This is the Bible's explanation for the name Yahweh. And as the personal name of God, some have argued that the name Yahweh expresses the quality of being an active, dynamic being. This God is one who brings things into being, whether it's a cosmos from chaos or now a new nation from a band of runaway slaves. I think that's beautiful. That's beautiful, Mike. And let me see if I can give you an additional resource. When Joseph gathered the brethren in Kirtland, Ohio, into the School of the Prophets, they provided some curriculum for them to study. That curriculum, known as Lectures on Faith, was printed in the Scriptures until 1921. Our Doctrine and Covenants had Lectures on Faith in it. In Lecture 3, Joseph Smith says that three things are necessary for any rational and intelligent being to have faith that leads to salvation. First, the idea that he actually exists. Second, a correct understanding of his character, attributes, and perfections. He then spends the rest of Lecture 3 explaining the character of God. And this idea of I am that I am, I exist I cause things to be. Things don't cause me to be. I don't get bumped out of the way. Nothing is greater than God is the first of the characteristics of God. The lectures on faith then say, For if we did not, in the first instance, believe him to be God, that is the creator and upholder of all things, he could not center faith in him or life and salvation. For fear there would be some greater than he who would thwart all his plans. And he, like the gods of the heathens, would be unable to fulfill his promises. But seeing he is God over all, from everlasting to everlasting, the creator and upholder of all things, no such fear can exist in the minds of those who put their trust in him so that in this respect, their faith can be without wavering. Now, the way I've always applied that in my life is to say to myself, which is greater, I am that I am or the problems I face? The God that cannot be moved out of his place, that just has always and always will exist, the great creator from eternity to eternity, which is greater, that God or the problems I face. Do you see why his name, I am that I am, is significant to a people in bondage? What he's saying is, I am greater than your burdens. I am greater than Pharaoh. I am greater than your pain. I am greater than your problems. I can and I will deliver you because I am. 
I love his name, Mike. I love that his name is I Exist. I always have, I always will, and nothing can move me out of my place, not even the burdens you face. I am greater than them all. Bryce, I really like that. And in the second chapter of Second Nephi, there's this beautiful description of the type of being that God wants us to be and the type of being that he is. And the distinction is, are you a being who acts or are you a being who is acted upon? And God is described as a happy being because he is one who acts. And nothing acts upon him. Nothing moves him out of place or stops him from fulfilling his promises. And he wants you to be that. So it's theologically preloaded in Second Nephi 2 that God, a being who acts and is proactive, he wants you to be like him. He wants you to be a being like unto the gods, one who causes things to be. And for me, Bryce, I'm happiest when I'm causing things to be, when I'm actually getting up and doing stuff. When I choose my emotions, when I choose my reaction, rather than feeling like I am subject to what you did to me or what you said about me, or my world is doing this to me, it's a matter of I get to choose my reaction. Viktor Frankl in his marvelous book, Man's Search for Meaning, says there's that sacred space between stimulus and response in which we find ourselves free to choose. That moment is where we own ourselves and we say, no, 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 no. My mood today is my choice, not my day's choice, not my consequences choice, not the things around me. My mood today is my choice because I get to choose how I react. That's saying to yourself, I am acting and not being acted upon. And the more we do that, the more we become like God, whose name is I am meaning I'm not acted upon. This is where we're going in the rest of Exodus. They're going to leave Egypt. They've been acted upon for so long, they don't know how not to be acted upon. So they're complaining and they're like, Moses, we want to have this and we want to have that. And I'm thinking, okay, they haven't learned the lesson. So sometimes you can take someone out of a circumstance, but they still have to learn that lesson, don't they? That's right. So trust him. Trust that no problem you face is greater than he is. I get to choose how I respond to the circumstance in which I find myself. That's good. That's a really good application. Before we move on, I want to look at a couple things. So if you look in chapter 3, we're still in Exodus 3, and you look in verse 8, God says, I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptian and to bring them out of the land into a good land and a large unto a land flowing with milk and honey. Once we get out of Genesis and we start getting into these other books of the Pentateuch, we see this over and over again. We see it again in verse 17. If you look at the end of that verse, unto a land flowing with milk and honey. And it's a repeated trope over and over again. God says, I'm going to take you to this land flowing with milk and honey. And my take on this is this is Book of Mormon image. We're back to the tree of Nephi. It's a recurrent symbol of the land's fertility. Milk and honey are seen as two of nature's nurturing elements that don't require a lot of agricultural knowledge, meaning if you have goats, they're going to make milk. And honey, you can find a beehive and you can get some honey. But they're also connected to working the field, working the land and animal husbandry and understanding how to take care of bees. Milk and honey are also connected to the image of the tree, lady wisdom, as I see it in Proverbs 3, verse 18, and images of holiness and creation. You see, reading Aristotle, he talks about this where he says that the honeybees were connected to divine foresight. He writes about this in History of Animals, where he talks about if there's a storm coming, the bee has this divine foresight to stay closer to the hive. They can predict the weather. A lot of the Greeks studied bees and use this term. This is what scholars term parthogenesis, which is this combination of two ideas. Partho is connected to the word for virgin, and Genesis is connected to this idea of creation or creating life. And the Greeks were fascinated that the bee could just create life without the typical things that animals did to create life. And so they looked at it as the great virgin, and they connected it to the mother goddess in different traditions. In Egypt, there's this goddess, and her name is Neith, and she wears the Deshret crown of Lower Egypt. 
And Hugh Nibley talks a lot about this, how Neith is connected to Asenath, who's the wife of Joseph. She's the woman that we read about earlier in the 41st chapter of Genesis that marries Joseph, and she's the daughter of the priest of On. And Hugh Nibley is going to connect this with a lot of the traditions that she has with her marriage. You see, in the extra biblical text called Joseph and Asenath, if you go to the 16th chapter, before she marries Joseph, Asenath, who's connected to the goddess Neith, who's connected to honey, she's connected to the honeybee, this woman that's about to marry Joseph meets an angel. And like I said, this is not in the Bible, but in this experience, I find this fascinating. And especially if you've been to sacred spaces and you listen to the blessing this angel gives Asenath, I find this provocative. She meets this angel before she marries Joseph and she gets white honey like the dew of heaven. And you see the honey was considered the food of the gods, the dew of heaven as it were. And the angel sits down and shares this honeycomb with her. And then he says, quote, blessed are they who eat of this honey made by the bees of paradise. Whoever eats it will never die. It is the food of heaven. And that's a promise of invulnerability. I mean, obviously we all die, but think about what Jesus says about the bread in John 6. Now, I see this as a blessing of both fertility and invulnerability given to her by this angel. And you can connect this blessing to Genesis 49, verses 22 through 26, the promise that is given to Joseph. That's the blessing that Jacob gives to him. And so if you read Genesis 49, 22 through 26, and then you juxtapose it with this blessing the angel gives his wife, I find this fascinating. So this is what the angel tells her, quote, behold, you have eaten bread of life and drunk a cup of immortality and been anointed with ointment of incorruptibility. Behold, from today, your flesh will flourish like flowers of life from the ground of the most high and your bones will grow strong like the cedars of paradise, of delight, of God, and untiring powers will embrace you, and your youth will not see old age, and your beauty will not fail forever. And you shall be like a walled mother city of all who take refuge with the name of the Lord God, the King of Ages. I'm like, I can't help but hear Alma talking about the fruit of the tree of life. Remember that verse in chapter 32 where he talks about planting the seed and the seed becomes the tree of life and that if you do plant the seed and if you do grow it, you get to eat the fruit. Now, listen to Alma's description of the fruit of the tree of life and compare it to what Mike just read. This has got to be connected. I'm reading in Alma 32, 42. So he says, And because of your diligence and your faith and your patience with the word in nourishing it, that it may take root in you, behold, by and by ye shall pluck the fruit thereof, which is sweet above that which is sweet, which is white above all that is white, yea, and pure above all that is pure. And ye shall feast upon this fruit, even until ye are filled, that ye hunger not neither shall ye thirst. That's got to be connected, Mike. A land flowing with milk and honey is the one you plant inside your soul and you grow the tree so that you have access to that ever-nourishing fruit that's going to get me through the burdens I carry and the pain in my heart because I'm going to eat the fruit that will fill me. Yeah, I love that. And I think it is superimposed with the tree. Proverbs talks a lot about this idea of the tree of wisdom in the third chapter, and also this idea that the tree can be connected to the divine feminine. You see, Hugh Nibley talks a lot about this, where he talks about the bee that left from heaven to guide Adam and Eve on the great trek. And he says, in the first of all migrations, Adam and Eve were accompanied and guided by the bees as they moved from the created order and then from the garden and then to the dark outer world. The bees brought with them the primordial creative divine power, their honey, made by the bees of paradise, the food of heaven. And they guided them into this lone and dreary world. And they were, in in the words of many of the ancients, the bee was associated with the divine feminine. And even the Greeks, they had this goddess that was this virgin goddess, and her name was Artemis. And she was the god of chastity and childbirth, and her name would be invoked when women were to give birth, similar to how the Israelites would invoke Asherah, the consort of El, 
her name when they would give birth. Now, obviously, I'm not declaring doctrine. We're just looking at stuff. We're just looking at these different cultures and seeing how the bee is connected, the honey, to the divine feminine. But in the Egyptian religion as well, many times, and it's obviously when I say in the Egyptian religion, there's hundreds and hundreds of years and dynasties. I mean, it's not one thing. It's not this monolithic religion. But one of the ideas was that the tree provided the milk and that to suckle the milk of the goddess was to become like them. And so we even have images of Zeus suckling of the milk to become divine. And that's where we get the word galaxy. We get the idea of the Milky Way galaxy. This It was this path where we die and we go and we ascend and we cover and we go back to, this is a lot, we go back to the presence of God. The milk and the honey were connected to that divine tree. And I think that's fascinating, Bryce, because you were the first one to really hammer this home. I remember years ago we talked about this, and you said, look at the descriptions of the fruit in First Nephi 8. I mean, the descriptions are, to me, connected to both ideas. Sweet above that, all that is sweet. Yeah, and then it's white. It exceeds all whiteness. Figuratively, this is mother's milk from heaven. And we're to come back into the embrace of God. And so the land of milk and honey, to me, in so many ways, gives this image of coming home to the tree, coming home to mother, but also to father. It's this land of fertility, but we're coming back to the embrace. And so it's fascinating to me, Bryce, that it's tied to Asenath. And it fascinates me that 14 times in the Pentateuch, which are known as the books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, 14 times you find the Lord saying, I'm going to lead you to a land flowing with milk and honey. And I just want to, again, tie you back to you're in bondage right now. You're in pain. You're suffering. I'm aware of it. But trust that someday I will lead you to a land flowing with milk and honey. Fourteen times the Lord makes that prophecy. I like how Hugh Nibley even connects it to Latter-day Saints. I mean, many of you are probably going, oh, yeah, Deseret, right? Hugh Nibley says, from the first, the symbol of the bee captivated the imagination of the Latter-day Saints in their migrations and their settlements. The emblematic hive became the seal of the territory and state and adorned every important edifice. And then he says, what strange coincidence it is. After the martyrdom of Joseph and Hiram, and at Emma's request, they were buried side by side, and the bee house was then moved and placed over their graves. That's Hugh Nibley. And I, you know, I read that, and I think about how even on the temple, on the handles, they have this beehive, this symbol for coming home, the symbol for even the, the great society. Many Greek thinkers looked at the beehive as a symbol for a unified state where everybody knew their place. And it was a place of order. And so there's a lot going on here with milk and honey. And I think, like you said, Bryce, this isn't just one time. Like this is repeated over and over again. As Latter-day Saints, it behooves us to kind of look into this and think about and ponder these things and what they may mean. Isaiah is going to use that idea of nursing in relationship to coming to God. How many times have we seen this, Bryce, where the image of a mother is used to describe the pity or compassion of God. A hen gathering her chicks. Yeah. So many times in the scriptures we see that motherhood is compared to Godhood. Yeah. Uh, let's go to the sixth chapter and briefly look at the name reveal. So this is from the priestly author. This is chapter six, verse one. The Lord said to Moses, Now shalt thou see what I will do to Pharaoh. With a strong hand he shall let them go. And then in verse three, he says, I appear to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob by the name God Almighty, but by my name Jehovah or Yahweh was I not known to them. In the Joseph Smith translation, Joseph changes that to, I am the Lord God Almighty, the Lord Jehovah, and was not my name known unto them. You know, I believe that that Joseph Smith translation kind of evens out some of the problems of the text. Now, the Hebrew text as we have it says essentially what verse 3 says. Verse 3, to scholars, is a big indication that there are multiple sources. You see, in the priestly narrative throughout Genesis, it's El Shaddai that's speaking to the patriarchs. But in the Yahweh's narrative, over and over again, and we cite this through the show notes, it's all over the place. To the Yahweh's, his name is Jehovah, and he's clearly telling them his name. This is an example of the multiple traditions of the text. This is what I believe is going on. The priestly author is taking 
and he's conflating El Shaddai with Yahweh. And from here on out, the priestly author is going to be more likely to refer to Yahweh because the two have been conflated. Is this that, that important? Not necessarily, but if you're someone who's looking at the text and you're trying to understand, why are these strange verses? And I see what Joseph's doing with verse three, but why does verse three say that? If you're one of those people, I think that's a good explanation that will help us to kind of see what's happening in the text. Now, between these two name reveals, the third chapter and the sixth chapter from two different traditions, there's a lot of things going on. In the fourth chapter, God gives signs. There's three of them to Moses. Then Moses says, I'm not really a good speaker. So in chapter four, verses 13 through 17, God says, well, I'm going to give you Aaron. And then Moses goes in the fifth chapter and he has his audience with Pharaoh. Hey, let us go. And then Pharaoh gives his response. Let's look at that response and see how he responds to Moses's request. Let us go. Notice the first request wasn't to let my people go. The first request was, let us go to the temple. Exodus chapter 5, Moses walks in and says, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast unto me in the wilderness. They wanted to go to the temple. They wanted to have a religious experience, a break from their labors. Can we go out into the wilderness, and then we'll come right back? And Pharaoh's response is something we do to ourselves. He says in verse 7, Hey, don't give them any straw to make bricks, because... Verse 8, they be idle, therefore they cry, saying, let us go and sacrifice. Let their more work be laid upon the men that they may labor therein. And then he concludes in verse 17, ye are idle, therefore I say unto you, let us go and do sacrifice to the Lord. Go therefore now and work. Now tell me if you do this to yourself. You're having a hard day. You've got a lot on your shoulders. You've worked a lot and you need to rest. So you sit down to take a moment for yourself. Now tell me what happens in your head when you sit down and take a moment for yourself. You do what Pharaoh did. You conclude that if I have time to take a break, I'm not working hard enough. And you deny yourself straw for the bricks. You tell yourself that you have to work harder. How many times in your life have you said to yourself, if I have time to take a break, if I have time to rest, if I have time for myself, then I'm not working hard enough. And you deny yourself straw for bricks and tell yourself that you need to work harder. Don't do it. Don't be Pharaoh to yourself. Understand that God commanded us in the very beginning, after the Lord creates the earth and before he hands the keys of this new planet over to Adam and Eve, he gives them some significant driving lessons. Here's how you navigate life on this earth. The very first thing that came out of his mouth is that, hey, I worked and now I'm going to rest. And I think that is very significant that the Lord is saying in the setting of how to be successful in life, it takes work and rest. Now, there's lots of ways to get that out of balance. Some people are out of balance and they're too lazy. They rest too much. And so the Lord says things like, there are idlers among you and every man needs to bear his part. And you can find lots of scriptures where the Lord is kind of rebuking those who rest too much. But there's another side to that. And that is the Lord rebukes those who don't rest enough. They're not taking the time they need to catch their breath and sharpen the saw. So the Lord says things like, don't run faster than you have strength. Rest is essential. Renewal and rejuvenation and connecting with the divine and taking a moment for yourself is essential. I love what he says to Martha and Mary. Do you remember Luke chapter 10, the very end of Luke chapter 10? Jesus comes to the house of Martha and Mary, and Martha is so caught up and stressed out about making the meal. And she kind of pushes Jesus to say, Mary, you need to help her. Mary's sitting at the Savior's feet listening. She's resting. She's spiritually resting. And she's rejuvenating. 
And Martha's a little stressed out that she's not helping her. And Jesus says, oh, Martha, thou art careful and troubled about many things, but one thing is needful, and Mary hath chosen that good part. I love that he didn't say it's better. It's needful. And when rest is needful, choose that good part. When work is needful, choose that good part. But don't deny yourself an opportunity to rest or go to the temple or to have a few minutes to yourself because you look around at all the work that needs to be done and you say what Pharaoh said, I'm just being lazy. Grant yourself an opportunity like God granted himself to rest and you'll be better for it. You know, Bryce, it reminds me of Moses going to the mountain. He's in that state of peace when he gets the revelation, or we've talked about this when Joseph was in Liberty Jail and he gets letters from his priesthood leader, his, his wife, wife, his brother. And that causes him to be in a state where he can receive revelation. I think you're onto something here. I really like what President Packer talked about, where he talked about how the adversary wants to take that peace away, where he says the first order issued by a commander mounting a military invasion is the jamming of the channels of communication of those he intends to conquer. Those channels have to be open. You have to have those milk and honey moments. You have to connect with heaven and gain strength and rebuild. Sometimes it's mental rest. It's emotional rest. Can you allow your emotions to rest? Can you allow your mental state to rest? Can you let your spirit rest? Can you find peace? It's not always physical rest. Sometimes I just need a mental break and I take it. I'm not going to deny myself that moment. We kind of see this at the end of chapter five. I mean, it's Moses's Liberty Jail experience where in verse 21, the elders of Israel, they get so upset with him because, oh, now we have to get straw. Thanks, Moses. Look what you did. And then Moses goes in verse 22, almost like Joseph, where he says, why? Why is it that you've sent me? I don't even, what's the point? And then in verse 23, he says, since I came to Pharaoh to speak in thy name, he hath done evil to this people, neither hast thou delivered thy people at all. I mean, that's like an Alma 14 moment where Alma and Amulek are standing there watching the converts being burned, and Amulek says, why? I mean, this is, this is a fundamental question that all religions ask. Where is the divine justice or the problem of evil? What do we do with this? I, I sought God out, and my situation got worse. Yeah. Hard. And the conclusion is, well, then I'm just not going to seek God out anymore. Yeah. It's like Naaman getting out of the river after one dip because the leprosy didn't fall. And there's that, wait a minute, be of good comfort. Blessings come. They will come. But sometimes it takes some time. Yeah. There's a couple things I want to emphasize here in the seventh chapter. In verse 3, where God says, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart, but it's also in the fourth chapter. In fact, this is all over the place in the text. And where it says that God is going to harden Pharaoh's heart, if you go to chapter 4, verse 21, Joseph Smith in the JST says, I will prosper thee, but Pharaoh will harden his heart. Now, there was a big theological debate in Joseph's day when Joseph Smith lived, and it maybe is still going on among some Christians about what to do with these verses. The Calvinist position, which is this idea that God has predestined everything, is that God is hardening Pharaoh's heart and good and evil, all of this stuff is all God's doing. And Joseph doesn't like these ideas. I mean, some Calvinist teachings were even saying things like, why even pray? Because God's already decided. And Joseph knew that prayer had efficacy because he had done it. And he knew that God was involved in our life. So I see Joseph not liking these verses and in the JST changing it. And I like that. And it fits our theology. But also, I love to geek out and say, okay, but why is that in there? And one of the reasons we think it's in there is because God is showing Moses' power. And it's kind of like this big WWF smackdown of the gods. You see, Moses is acknowledging that the Egyptians have their gods, and Jehovah is Moses' God, and Jehovah is going to beat up the Egyptian gods. We're going to see that with the plagues narrative. And so I'm totally okay with all these verses where God's saying, I'm going to harden his heart if we read it with our ancient lenses on and take off our modern lenses. It's kind of like Gideon. 
the Lord says to Gideon, I'm going to deliver you, but your army is way too big because if you win the battle now, you'll assume it was you. You'll assume that you were the ones that were victorious. So I'm going to reduce your army. He reduces it to some pitiful amount so that it's obvious that God won the victory. I think the idea here is, do you remember when King Benjamin taught, you've got to remember the greatness of God and the nothingness of man. Because if you mess that up, if you assume that man is great and God is not, it leads to all the problems in our lives. But as long as you remember, this is Mosiah chapter 4, as long as you remember the greatness of God, everything else is going to be fine. And so I find the Lord saying back in chapter 3, verse 19, I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go. No, not by a mighty hand. So however you read the text, the idea here is God is setting it up that the victory was clearly his. Yeah. and that he is mightier than Pharaoh, and that every time Pharaoh tried to make a power play, the Lord ended up outdueling him, beating him in the power play. So I think it's okay to read it that God hardened his heart as long as we understand that the motive here is to show the people the mighty hand of God, and that we remember it was by his mighty hand that I was delivered. It wasn't by my hand that I was delivered. Yeah, that's excellent. Now, the actual text has a couple of different words. One of them is the word heavy, which is kavad, and the other one is the word for strong, chazak. And those two words, at least according to many scholars, come from different traditions. The northern tradition, what I believe was on the brass plates, Lehi's tradition from the north, the northern tradition is called the Elohist. And on this text, Pharaoh's heart is made heavy. The King James translators are going to translate that his heart was hardened, but the actual text says that his heart was heavy. And I believe that this was an attack against the character of Pharaoh. I really do. And the reason why I believe this is because in the Egyptian judgment scenes, the heart of the individual, if they were to proceed and not be eaten by Amit, Amit's this character that's going to devour you if you're not worthy, well, They'll eat you if your heart's heavy, and your heart is literally, in the 125th chapter of the Book of the Dead, your heart is weighed against the feather of truth. And if your heart is too heavy, then you're bad. And it's connected with all these confessions you have to make, that I've never done these horrible things, and there's a bunch of these what are called negative confessions. And so in the Egyptian religious mindset, if you were worthy and you could pass those tests or those questions... If you are worthy, then your heart would be lighter than the feather of truth. And so that's what I think is going on. And what's interesting is there's a pun on that word kavod or heavy all throughout the Elohist narrative. Some of these are really interesting. For example, Pharaoh says, let the work be heavy in Exodus 5.9, or four of the plagues that are given to the Egyptians are described as heavy. The one on the insects, the pestilence, the hail, and the locusts. When the Israelites leave in the 12th chapter of Exodus, they leave with, quote, a very heavy livestock. And then when Moses holds up his arms as the Israelites fight the Amalekites in the 17th chapter, his hands were, quote, heavy. And then Jethro tells Moses to get help in administering the people because, quote, the thing is too heavy for you. That's Exodus 18.18. This chain of puns culminates at Horeb. There is a, quote, heavy cloud on the mountain, end quote, in the 19th chapter of Exodus. And so this idea of Pharaoh's heart being heavy is a polemic against Egypt and against their authority. I essentially see this as the author of the Northern text asserting that the Egyptians don't have authority. In fact, that they're wicked. And it's an ancient way of kind of saying those ideas, and it's lost in translation because we're not really familiar with these ideas. And that's why kind of getting into this really helps us to see that, no, these texts really did make sense to the ancients, and oftentimes they were probably a little bit humorous. My take on the constant repetition of things being heavy would be a way that this story could be told orally and that in these oral stories or these oral traditions, they also had a little tinge of humor in them. And also they were kind of an attack against the Egyptians. In other words, it's a smackdown and Yahweh is going to defeat these Egyptian gods. 
So hopefully that helps make sense as far as why it's in there and how an ancient reader of the text would have viewed God hardening Pharaoh's heart, that they're really actually, in my view, they're attacking Pharaoh and his character. Now, that brings us to the end of this week's Come Follow Me lesson, and I find it very significant that the church ended this week after chapter 6. Chapter 7 is where the mighty hand begins to save the Israelites, and the Lord starts flexing his muscles. And that's an important message, but I find it significant that we end here in 6, that this week's Come Follow Me ends the Israelites no better off than when Moses arrived. In fact, they're worse off because now they have to gather their own straw. And I find that very significant to our lives, that every one of us are going to have that moment where, wait a minute, I reached out for God's help. I dipped once in the river and the leprosy didn't come off. There is great value in that moment between our pain beginning and the Lord delivering us from that pain. There is strength to be had. There is rowing to be done. There is value of that stretch in those days. And so I'm very grateful that we're ending this week's Come Follow Me before the mighty hand starts to come, to leave you for a whole week to all of you who are suffering, to anyone out there that is carrying a heavy burden. It is my solemn witness to each one of you that he sees, he knows, he's visited, he understands, and he promises he will deliver. No pain that you suffer is going to last forever. Deliverance will come. When Jesus said on the cross that his pain was over, it meant that no one else's pain would go on forever either that he would make sure that all tears get wiped off of all eyes. In the meantime, while you wait, and perhaps even while you wonder, may you go back to that beautiful verse in Mosiah where the Lord says, in between then and now, let me wrap my arms around you and strengthen you. Let me thicken the bones to handle the weight that it's carrying. Of those moments, I testify and pray that you will find peace from your burden because he has strengthened your back and knowing that someday deliverance is coming. And with that, we'll see you next week when we cover Exodus 7 through 13. The mighty hand of deliverance. Have a great week. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.